The following program is being brought to you on the Seventh Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit SeventhWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon, and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to see your true self in the midst of life's twists and turns. You'll be challenged to think outside of the box when it comes to the mysteries of life. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. Good afternoon, and welcome to Authentic Living. Today, we're talking about a subject most of us don't want to talk about, crisis. But crisis, as we shall see throughout this hour, can be the mother of our authenticity. Actually, you know, the truth is that Carl Jung said there is no coming to consciousness without pain, and that's the truth. We are driven, compelled by pain to seek peace. And so in the process, we become a little bit more creative. Crises. What are the various crises we have in our life? Well, the first way we're going to know that we are in a crisis is because of the way we feel. We feel trembly all over. We feel sometimes traumatized. We feel very, very sad. We feel sometimes out of control. We feel as if we are not going to be able to stop crying. We feel as if um, we are not going to be able to stop being anxious. We feel terrified, afraid, alone, lost. Those are the feelings that we have when we're in a crisis, and that's part of how we know we're in a crisis is by the way we feel. And so our feelings have information for us. They can define something about our external circumstances. They can tell us when we're threatened. They can tell us when we're vulnerable. They can tell us all kinds of things. And that is a part of the process of dealing with crisis as if it's a growth experience. You see, if we didn't have those feelings, we wouldn't know we were in a crisis, because just by the crisis itself, we might not know. Now, if we have an automobile accident or somebody shoots us, we're probably going to know by the physical pain. But by the emotional, unless there's emotional pain to go with it, we might not even call that a crisis. We might not even call that a big deal. Some people do that. Some people who wear what I call the superwoman or superman identity can go through extreme pain without really even noticing it. I know of someone who was in labor hard labor, intense labor, and said she wasn't. The nurse said, oh, yes, you are. <laughs> and she said, oh, no, I'm not. She said, oh, yes, you are. I can tell. Look here at this little gadget. And that's how she knew she was in pain. She, that's how she knew she was in labor. But in terms of feeling the pain, she had shut off her internal emotional receptors to that pain. And so she really didn't know. So part of the way we're going to know we're in a crisis is by the way it is handled internally through our emotions. And so that's going to be a real big key to how we deal with the crisis because how we deal with the crisis is going to be everything about paying attention to those feelings. Paying attention to what's going on inside of us is going to get us to a new place inside of us. The biggest deal about crisis, I think, is fear. 
we're we're afraid. We don't want to have to have a crisis. We don't want to be involved in it. We want it to hurry up and get over. And we're afraid that it might last a while. We're afraid it's going to happen before it ever happens. And then when it happens, we're afraid it's going to last a while. And so we want to hurry it up. We want to push it through. I hear people every day. You've heard people every day. You've probably said this at some point in your life. I'm tired of growing. I'd like to just have a little time off, please. Well, yeah, I can understand that. We all understand that feeling. At the same time, we're n- we never stop. That's kind of like you know the old adage about your 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 kids when the grandma comes around and she says, "Oh, you've grown so much, little Billy." And we say, "Well, you know, you can't put a, how are you going to stop it? You're going to put a brick on his head." Well, it's the same thing. It's with our emotional growth, we we continue to grow regardless if we are tuned in to growing. We can tune out growing. We can certainly continue to have the same painful situations again and again and again and decide not to grow, hope that it will pass away. The truth is most of us, well, I won't say most of us, a lot of us depend on um, a kind of randomness to life. We, we We depend on the fact that life is relatively random. Things happen to people. There's not much say-so that we have about that, and so we either have good luck or bad luck. And that's, a, that's a sort of like the old definition of demons. The, the definition of the Greek word for demons in the Bible is the distribution of fortunes, which I find a very interesting definition. So that if a man had epilepsy, one could say he was, uh, had many demons because he was very unlucky because he had all these seizures. He had distributed bad fortune upon him. So in that same way, we we tend to think that way too, that life happens and, you know, we even sometimes think that our choices happen, that they just sort of come along. We hear people all the time on TV say, well, I just don't know why I had that affair. It just happened. I don't know how I read, got that motel room and slept with that man or that woman. It just happened. Well, no, it didn't. We We, we might have decided at some point to tune out and not really pay attention to the fact that we were literally making a choice. But it didn't just happen. We chose it. And so that kind of sense of I can, I have the ability to sort of tune things out and just not notice what I'm up to is some of what we do in sort of staying stuck in deciding not to grow through a particular crisis. We can say, uh, you know, you can look at people's lives where they might marry the same type of a person again and again, say so a, a man who marries an alcoholic or an addict uh, and then he divorces her, and he marries another alcoholic or an addict. Uh, then divorces her and marries another alcoholic or an addict. There's not much growth happening there that we can actually see. Maybe there is some internal growth that we can't see, but it's difficult to say that this person is really making great strides in progress in terms of his psychological growth. In the same way, we see ourselves having very similar problems if we're looking. There's a metaphor that we can find in a crisis that is very much like a crisis we had in the past or the one before that or the one before that. They may not be the same people. They may not even be the same uh, kind of construct in terms of the actual literal um, events or circumstances, but the theme, the basic theme is the same. For example, um, you might have a husband or a wife or a lover, a partner. Let's just say partner. That covers all the bases there. A partner who... uh, doesn't uh, who is not very caring, not very loving, not very kind. 
not very supportive. We also have friends who are not very supportive. We have a boss who's not very supportive. We have coworkers who are not very supportive. Now, all of those people may impact us in different ways, but the theme remains the same, not getting much support. Now, how does that happen? We tend to be drawn to unresolved issues in our lives. So, for example, in that scenario, it could be, doesn't have to be, but it could be that uh, a person came from a home in which there was not much emotional, physical, mental, otherwise support. Persons were not getting supported. So they grow up and they get attracted to all these other people who are not supporting them. Why do they do that? We do that because we, our psyche is trying to get us to resolve that issue of lack of support. Okay, we couldn't get our parents to support us. We didn't have the ability to say, you're going to have to support me and have our parents believe us. Most of us didn't even know that we weren't getting support except that we felt lonely and, and troubled. Uh, we didn't really know how to define it. We did, certainly didn't want to be the confronters of our parents you know, unless we became adolescents and then we probably got good at it. But to be able to really honestly sit down with our parents and say, look, I really need you to support me. I really need this, 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 and this from you. That information wasn't even available to most of us. Maybe one day it will be. The children will be a little bit more cognizant of those kinds of things. But the problem is that we have parents who are the really the supposed, they're supposed to be the cognizant ones, and they're sometimes not. So... We can't depend on the children to be able to confront the parents, and we can't look back at our past and say, well, how come I put up with that as a child? Well, you pretty much had to as a child because they were bigger. So, but as an adult, we move into scenarios that are familiar to us. We, we leave home, but we take it with us. And so we, we do, again, what got done to us. And so we get attracted to people who are unsupportive, and we look back over a long train of people in our lives that haven't been supportive. They haven't listened. They haven't been there for us. When We were there for them, maybe, and we were really there for them, but they weren't there for us. That's a theme I hear a lot in therapy, and that's the reason I'm talking about that one. But the truth is, many of our crises are caused uh, by that kind of scenario in which we unconsciously are driven to repeat and repeat and repeat something. But the point of the crisis is that the psyche, which is always leaning toward wholeness, is trying to get us to resolve it. Psyche thinks, well, if they just keep running into this brick wall over and over and over again, one day they're going to put their hand up on their head and say, guess what, I'm bleeding. This hurts like heck, and I just don't want to keep on running into this wall, so how can I get around it? And then we start asking good questions, and that's where growth begins. It begins with questions about what we're up to. It does not necessarily begin with questions about what other people are up to, although when we notice a pattern that we keep being drawn to the same types of people, looking at that type, uh, that ty- the pattern of I'm always attracted to people that are unsupportive, for example, is good. We have to be able to use that form of discernment to be able to say, oh, I see, there's another unsupportive person, and uh-huh, there's another unsupportive person. And so we have to be able to look at that and say, okay, I see my pattern. I get to keep getting attracted to unsupportive people. In order to do that, I have to recognize lack of support. So a lot of times we, we don't want to look at other people and say, because we are afraid that that means we're being judgmental. But actually we have to look at other people to the degree that they impact our lives because we have to know what's going on. 
we don't have to judge them. We don't have to say, oh, they're horrible people. We just have to recognize the patterns in our own lives and then turn inward and look at what we can do to change the patterns. In part, what we'll do to change the patterns is begin to listen to ourselves about how we feel. A lot of times when people recognize that they've hit the wall, so to speak, that, that an old pattern has, has been repeated and repeated and repeated until it, it's become a bloody spot on our foreheads, we, that's when we begin to feel the pain of it. Sometimes we get angry. Sometimes we're hurt. Sometimes we're just tired of being hurt. We're tired of carrying other people's loads. That, those feelings are all informative. And we're going to talk some more about that right after this quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. I begin each day with an intention to be open to guidance, to expect guidance, to trust and appreciate when guidance comes. With these intentions, each day is easier to navigate. Hi, I'm Sonia Choquette. When I decided to trust my guidance and further my education, I chose the American Institute of Holistic Theology, A-I-H-T, with a soulful pathway to deep learning. In my own home, on my own schedule, I earn my PhD in metaphysics. You know, the value of wisdom only grows, and in developing our own gifts, we can help others evolve, too. That's how it works. These self-paced programs in holistic health, metaphysics, holistic ministries, parapsychic science, and holistic theology can embolden your spirit to change the world. And the time has come for us all to do our part in changing the world. So in this moment, call the American Institute of Holistic Theology. The number is 1-800-650-4325. In this moment, visit AIHT.edu. All my love. When I found out my jeans were made using child labor in sweatshops, I wrote a letter to the company saying, reconsider your labor practices. A few months later, I get a letter back saying, thanks for being a loyal customer, and they included a coupon for a 25% discount on their jeans. So I got smart, wrote letters every day to all the stores that carry the brand, asking them to stop supporting the companies who use child labor in sweatshops. And I just kept getting letters back, thanking me for my concerns, and more coupons for more discounts on more jeans. So I'm telling my friend about it, and she flips out, saying that between all the letters and coupons, some paper company cut down a small forest, driving off two indigenous tribes, hundreds of endangered animals, killing thousands of plant species, some of which may have contained vaccines for HIV, cancer, and syphilis. Meanwhile, the guys cutting down the trees are 13-year-old kids who work night and day for months just to save up enough money to buy a pair of jeans made by child labor in sweatshops. Saving the world isn't easy, but saving a life is. Just one pint of blood can save up to three lives. Visit bloodsaves.com to learn more. This public service announcement was brought to you by the Ad Council. Listening on a higher dimension. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. 
We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back with Authentic Living. This is Andrea Matthews. This show is sponsored by the American Institute of Holistic Theology. We were talking in the last segment about how crises can evolve, sort of uh, come to be as a result of a repetition of patterns or or pattern choices in our lives. And we're going to talk just a little bit more about that uh, before we move on to a different kind of crisis. The, the crises that are, are, have to do with a pattern that repeats and repeats and repeats tend to be issues where they, the psyche is looking for resolution. And so we want to be able to pay attention to what the psyche is being able to tell us through the crisis itself. And so we're going to listen to what, what's come up, what's come up as a result of finally getting it that this is a repetitive pattern. What generally comes up are feelings of anger, feelings of sorrow, feelings of, of regret, feelings of remorse, feelings of, of intense um, frustration that the pattern has kept continued to repeat and repeat. But we can look at that and go, okay, what are these feelings trying to get from me? What are, they, what are they saying to me? What is the message they're trying to give me? Because our emotions are just that. They are not meant to be... Um, compulsions that drive us to act. Every time you feel angry, we don't go hit somebody. At least most of us don't. Um, Every time we feel sad, we don't even always cry. Every time we feel happy, we don't even always giggle. So we know that our feelings are not supposed to necessarily be all about uh, action. And sometimes we think of them that way. I've even asked uh, people sometimes, well, were you angry? And they say, well, no, I didn't hit anybody. I didn't yell, and I go, okay, well, those are the actions that you might attribute to anger, but were you feeling it? Oh, yeah, I was feeling really angry. <laughs> so what we get is that we get the feeling and the action mixed up a lot of time. We don't really dis- discern the distinctions between the two. We don't think we're really angry until we act. We don't think we're really sad until we cry. We don't think we're really happy until we're jumping up and down joy. So you see, there, there's lots of ways that we uh, give power the power of our feelings to our actions. So we need to look a little deeper than just our actions. We need to look down into the feelings and ask them, what are you trying to tell me? Oftentimes, particularly if it's anger, we think that we're trying to be told that somebody else is doing something wrong and we need to get them to stop. Well, you know, yeah, we might need to be able to assert ourselves, but lots of times we can't get people to stop doing what they're doing. What we can do, however, is, is make a boundary for ourselves. Lay down a very clear boundary that says, this is not something I'm going to tolerate any longer because it's not healthy for me. It's toxic for me. It's not good for me. We have to begin at the point of a crisis to, be, to treat ourselves as if we matter. We've been taught, we've come up in a society that tells us that basically we shouldn't matter to ourselves. And it's a paradox because we, we talk about the selfish generation, the me-me generation of, of uh, young people growing up, these kids today. Well, the, the deal is that what we're really saying is that you're not supposed to really be thinking about yourself. 
What I would say about that is in, until I begin to think about myself, I'm not really clearly able to discern what's going on with other people. So I have to get inside myself as a human being and really uh, figure out what's going on in there. And that doesn't mean analyzing myself. It means noticing. It means observing. It means paying attention. Oh, well, I feel that, and this is what I'm doing. And, and, and to, to say, okay, I'm repeating this pattern, or I, I tell this lie to myself, or I tell this lie to other people, these are the ways that we get honest with ourselves and we begin to grow. We don't grow any other way. We can have, as, as Carl Jung said, there is no con- coming to consciousness without pain. It is possible to not come to consciousness even with pain. But I believe that Carl Jung is right. We, we, must, we do, at this point in our evolution, we do seem to need pain to drive us to look for consciousness. And what does it mean to consciousness? It means paying attention to what's going on inside me. So many times in therapy I'm asking people, how do you feel about that? And their answer is, well, I don't know. And my response is, well, if you don't know what's going on inside you, then you don't own your life. So who does own your life? And that's an important uh, distinction we have to make is who owns me? What am I giving power to? What am I, what am I uh, giving my days to? If, I, if somebody gets mad at me in the morning, is that controlling my whole day? then I've given my power over to that person. If um, my father or my mother didn't really like me much when I was little and I become suicidal and want to kill myself, well, what I'm really doing is agreeing with my parents that that I really shouldn't be here. So we have to listen enough to to, to get clear on what's going on inside of us so that we can discern enough to know ourselves enough to take the next step and that next step, once we get to know ourselves, will be an authentic step. And that is how crisis becomes the mother of authenticity. And so we can begin to look at our patterns, but there's other things we, we need to look at. How much are we protecting ourselves? What are we doing about security issues? Carl Jung also said protection and security are only valuable if they do not cramp life excessively. And that's the truth. So many times as I'm dealing with parents um, who are raising young children, there's this intense desire to protect the child from anything bad that could ever happen to it. And certainly, I'm a mother. I can understand our needs to protect our children. At the same time, we, ha- we have to know that when a problem arises in a child's life, it is just as much an opportunity for the child to grow as it is for, for us to grow as adults when a crisis arrives. Now, we don't want to uh, have the child traumatized if we can avoid it. We don't want to put undue stress on the child if we can avoid it. We certainly want to protect, but we don't want to overprotect. We don't want to make our decisions, our life decisions. For example, in the case of a divorce, if, uh, if two parents are really unhappy together and um, really are not a good match for each other or say there's some abuse going on or maybe some alcohol or, or, or drug problems going on, those kids know what's going on. And if you stay saying, oh, my kids need two parents, what you may be saying is, I'm, I'm going to protect my children from the crisis of my divorce. But in the process, what you may be doing is giving them a longer-term crisis of having to deal with two parents who really shouldn't be together. So we trade off. We tend to do that bargaining. And we'll talk some more about that in just a few minutes. How much are we protecting ourselves? What kind of security are we seeking? So many times what we do is we cover ourselves so much with security that we don't even recognize that we are not living. We get ourselves in a rut. We tend to, to, to 
often marry safe people, people that make us feel very secure, and then 10 years, 20 years down the road figure out that you never really loved that person, you just needed some safety in your life. And while the safety that you gained in that relationship was very important and can be carried with you for the rest of your life, it will ultimately create a crisis. So you see what I'm saying is that too much security will ultimately out. Ultimately, if we're covering ourselves in <clears throat> excuse me, blankets and blankets of security, what we're doing is setting ourselves up for a crisis later because what we're saying is I will not grow. I will, I will be so secure that I won't have to look at anything difficult or anything hard. I'll just sit here in my little room with my little blankets all around me and I'll be safe from every problem that will ever happen and therefore I won't have to grow. In the process, what happens is ultimately we, because the authentic self looks for meaning in life, that little rutted room is not going to be enough. We, it will not be enough to satisfy the, the need for meaning. And so if the authentic self can't be heard in any other way, it will create a crisis so that it can be heard. So sometimes when we've sought too much safety, we create a crisis to get out of the safety so we can find meaning in our lives. And you all have known, I've known sometimes people who will um, um, find a very cloistered environment to live in, um, not ever get married, uh, seek out um, um, very safe uh, relationships, and, or maybe get married to someone who makes them feel very safe and end up in a crisis of monumental proportions because they're completely unprepared for the feelings that arise when the crisis erupts. And so it just throws them over the edge because they have overprotected themselves for so long they don't recognize how to deal with a crisis when it comes up. I think one of the most effective things that we can do for ourselves and for other people is to recognize that crisis is a tool. It is not, uh, um, as, uh, it is not an awful event. It is not something we need to awfulize, as Albert Ellis would put it. It is something that we need to say, okay, this is a tool. It's a difficult tool to be sure. It's a painful tool to be sure, but I can use it to make myself a home that I can live in and really be happy in, find a meaningful life in. Okay? So that's one of the, way, one of the things that we can do is to get, seek out too much safety, and ultimately it will drive us to a crisis. The next thing we need to understand is that a lot of our neuroses are created uh, as a way of avoiding crisis. Again, Carl Jung says, neurosis is always a substitute for legitimate suffering. And I like that because neurosis is not psychosis. Now, I want to be clear. Neurosis is a way of sort of coping with life in a way that really is not working real good, but it sort of makes us feel like it's working okay, so so we go on with it. It's... Uh, Perhaps we, because we're afraid that the house is going to be down, burned down, we will uh, overcheck before we leave the house, check five or six times. Ultimately, you could make that into a diagnosis, but the point I'm trying to make is we're, we're overcompensating for our fear that the house might burn down, and that's a neurotic response. What Jung says is that it is a substitute for legitimate suffering, and legitimate suffering would be suffering that gets us to the point of being able to say, who am I? Who am I after everything else is said and done, after all the crises, after all the relationships, after all the, the jobs, after all of the identity 
identities that I've put on, all the masks and costumes that I've worn, who am I really? And that's what a crisis can bring us to. And so we would call that an essential crisis, one that brings us to meaning, one that brings us to our authenticity. And we're going to talk some more about crisis as the mother of authenticity right after the break. for a transforming world. Seventh Wave Network. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! Uh. There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. I begin each day with an intention to be open to guidance, to expect guidance, to trust and appreciate when guidance comes. With these intentions, each day is easier to navigate. Hi, I'm Sonia Choquette. When I decided to trust my guidance and further my education, I chose the American Institute of Holistic Theology, A-I-H-T. with a soulful pathway to deep learning. In my own home, on my own schedule, I earn my PhD in metaphysics. You know, the value of wisdom only grows, and in developing our own gifts, we can help others evolve too. That's how it works. These self-paced programs in holistic health, metaphysics, holistic ministries, parapsychic science, and holistic theology can embolden your spirit to change the world. And the time has come for us all to do our part in changing the world. So in this moment, call the American Institute of Holistic Theology. The number is 1-800-650-4325. In this moment, visit a-I-H-T dot E-D-U. All my love. What can you tell me about SkillsUSA? SkillsUSA teaches you employability skills. So you know how to deal with people, you have teamwork, your resume is going to look awesome. Well, it's important to know your technical skills, but not only that, to have soft skills, the skills of learning how to communicate with people. web at skillsusa.org. Awakened media for a transforming world. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free. 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. 
And we're back with Authentic Living, brought to you by the American Institute of Holistic Theology. You know, one of the biggest mistakes I think we make when a crisis arrives is we try to figure out who to blame. We've seen this with the recent economic crisis. We had to figure out who to blame before we can figure out what to do next. Yeah, I used to experience that with my children. As a parent, I would, you know, be in the middle of the house and I'd call out, well, there's a problem, whatever specific problem it was. There's a problem out here, and I'd hear from both sides of the house, I didn't do it. You know, the first thing is we got to figure out who did it wrong. And I would always answer, well, I don't care who did it, but we got to solve it. So both of you get out here and let's do it. So the the deal is that we are looking for a place to put things, a place to say, well, it's not my fault. It's it's got to be somebody else's fault, or maybe it is my fault. Maybe that's our 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 pattern is to blame ourselves for things. The issue is it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. Whose fault? I use that as an F word. It's it's a word that really makes no difference whatsoever in our psychological growth. We might be able to look at our patterns and see something there. We might be able to look at how other people have a patterned relationship to us, and we might be able to see something there. But that, in and of itself, is not going to solve the problem. And, you know, the truth is that there are some crises that don't really get solved. And we'll talk about that some more in just a few minutes. But... If we want to really look at a problem, we've got to get rid of blame. We talk about, you know, the whole idea of letting go a lot. We talk about let go of that, let go of this, let go of that. And, and what we basically mean is we're powerless over that, so just admit it to yourself. You're powerless. You can't do anything about it, so just acknowledge that, and that's how you'll let it go. But for most of us, it's very difficult to let go. And one of the things that's very difficult for us to let go of is blame. Blame goes hand-in-hand hand with shame, and both of them reduce our growth. They, they are anti-growth. They're not growth-inducing. They're growth-reducing. And so what I would say is when you find yourself trying to figure out whose fault it is, you're already on the wrong path. If there's a wrong here, I put that in quotation marks, wrong is a relative term, but it's not the path that's going to lead you to growth. And so... If we, if we start saying, okay, I'm going to move beyond blame. Okay, now what's really going on inside of me? What are my responses to this particular crisis? Can I name the particular crisis? Can I, crisis? Can I give it a name that makes it useful to me? Um, we can have all kinds of crises. Some of them, like I said, we're, are, are based on pattern behavior. Some of them will come about as a result of not ever challenging ourselves um, seeking too much safety, and a crisis erupts out of seeking too much safety. Um, sometimes we have crises that we don't have any say-so about, and they come out of the blue and drop on us, like an automobile accident or a health issue or a death of someone that we love or uh, economic crises or fires that build, burn down things that we love, hurricanes, acts of God, as we call them. Um, these are things that happen. They, we, don't, we can't necessarily explain them. There's a mystery to why a hurricane happens. Why did it happen to you and not to me? Why did it happen to me and not to you? We don't understand that. We're never going to be able to figure out who to blame. But lots of times in the bargaining phase of grief, we tend to want to blame as, as our bargain. If I can blame it on you or if I can blame God, then I don't have to really experience the other feelings that come along with this crisis. The, the deal is that we lose things. We we lose things in life. We lose cars. We lose people. We lose jobs. We lose identities. We lose our health. We lose things in this life. 
And that in and of itself can be considered to be a crisis. Why? Because our feelings about it are so intense. That's what makes it a crisis. And so we have to be able to say, okay, here's what I'm feeling. I'm feeling intense loss, and that's going to create some uh, sadness. It's going to create some anger. It's going to create some need to hide from anger or sorrow or feelings of pain through denial. I might bargain with it a little bit. I might try to say, well, if I do so-and-so, maybe it won't be so bad, or if I do so-and-so, maybe the problem will go away, or if they'll just do so-and-so, maybe it'll be all better. And finally, we reach acceptance. Those are the stages of grief, but I call them stages of acceptance because everything that we have to accept in life go through those stages to some degree or another. Those stages don't happen in any order, but they and sometimes they're pretty chaotic happening all at once, but they do happen. And if we can recognize them, name them, own those feelings, sit with those feelings, um, sit beside ourselves as we do that, seek out comfort, whether it's with our, by ourselves or with other people, to seek some comfort when we're, when we're feeling that way. Then we've owned the problem. Then we've owned the crisis. We've incorporated it into our life, and we've begun to use it as a tool to advance our lives. And so that's what we're talking about in terms of making a crisis into the mother of authenticity. Okay, in a given crisis, say, for example, you've lost someone that was very dear to you, a death. You've had a death in the family or, or, or a death of a, a relationship or a death of a sibling or a daughter or a son or a mother or a father, somebody that was very important to you. And you're feeling some intense loss. You don't know where to, to be because there's some part of your identity that's uh, locked in with that relationship, and it's hard to figure out where to put yourself because that relationship is no longer there. So, okay, who am I now? Who am I now as a person who's lost this significant other? And that's a part of the process, recognizing not just the feelings of loss, but recognizing that you change as a result of that person no longer being in the room. There's been an interactive uh, element to your character that was all about that relationship, and that's now gone. And so a piece of your identity is now gone. So what do you do with that? You, you find out who you are now. Find out who you are now. You're changed. Who is that? Who is that person? Where we come into the crisis here when we've experienced a loss is when we get to, well, that person is worthless. That person doesn't mean much because that other person is gone. That's where it becomes a real difficult crisis of identity, an existential crisis, where we, we begin to say, okay, well, if who I am is worthless without that other person, well, that's pretty scary. Now I'm scared of myself. Now I can't trust myself. And that's when we begin, begin to say, okay, maybe I need some help here to sort this out. And that's where I would recommend that people go into therapy or seek some other help that would be meaningful to them. And, and so in that process, what happens is if we can begin to say, okay, if I think of myself as a worthless person because I've lost the significant other, where did I get that notion that I was worthless? My guess is it came around way before I even met this other person that was significant to me, or unless that person was my, a parent who has known me all my life, it came about early in my life where I began to say, unless I can own someone else, then there is no there is no me. There is nobody there that's worth anything unless I can own someone else. And so that's where attachment gets to be a really big issue, attachment uh, that says, 
I define myself by what I'm attached to. And so we can say, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to learn to find out, to, to be me in the midst of this crisis, to find something else besides, within myself besides worthlessness. What's going to happen is I'm going to discover other feelings. I'm going to discover maybe some anger. I'm going to discover maybe some sense of, of, of longing to do something with my life that I haven't done before. I might discover a sense of longing for a place that I haven't been in a long time or would like to be. Those are the things that begin to give us guidance. They begin to say, okay, here's how I'm going to turn this crisis into a tool to bring about my authenticity. So you see, that crisis, even as, as uh, difficult as a death is, can turn into something very, very beautiful if we, if we use it. We all know of people who won't let themselves get over uh, the loss of someone that they love. And we also know that we live in a society that says, oh, just get over it. You know, uh, I heard a, about a situation not long ago where someone had lost a significant other and, and uh, one of their friends called them in about four weeks after the funeral was over and said, well, you're not over that now? So, you know, we do have this rushed-up version of how we're supposed to grieve in a few weeks and get over it and move on to the next sitcom. But that isn't true. It's, it's utterly false. Grief, there is no assigned time limit. There is no assigned time frame for, for grief, how it happens. Uh, just on the other side of that, we also have some people saying, well, grief takes two years. You know, that's how long it should take. Well, we don't know how long it should take. Everybody's different and everybody's how they've come to that grief is different. Perhaps you may have known that someone was going to die for a long time and you grieved a lot before the death, so when the death actually occurs, there's not much less grieving left to do except to move to acceptance. And so that, that process is not, cannot be defined by someone else. It's a very individual process. But it has created a crisis, and the crisis says, okay, now I have to walk through this grief and find me again. And so we need to know that when there's been a significant loss in our life, a part of our identity has been attached to that relationship, either whether it's a person or a, a job or a situation, whatever. It, it, part of us has been attached to that, and that part now, that part of us now is gone. So we're going to have to reconstruct who we are in that place. That empty place will have to be filled up with who we are now. And that's a part of how we grow into authenticity. The, the, we've got this pattern in our world in which we say that, you know, feelings are not really that important. But I say that feelings are the direction. They are our guidance. They are our internal guidance system. We have to be able to name them, claim them, own them, experience them, not wallow in them, but just experience them so that we can be able to take from them the message that they have to give. And we'll be talking some more about crisis as the mother of authenticity right after this break. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. I begin each day with an intention to be open to guidance, to expect guidance, to trust and appreciate when guidance comes. With these intentions, each day is easier to navigate. Hi, I'm Sonia Choquette. 
When I decided to trust my guidance and further my education, I chose the American Institute of Holistic Theology, A-I-H-T. It was a soulful pathway to deep learning. In my own home, on my own schedule, I earned my Ph.D. in metaphysics. You know, the value of wisdom only grows, and in developing our own gifts, we can help others evolve, too. That's how it works. These self-paced programs in holistic health, metaphysics, holistic ministries, parapsychic science, and holistic theology can embolden your spirit to change the world. And the time has come for us all to do our part in changing the world. So in this moment, call the American Institute of Holistic Theology. The number is 1-800-650-4325. In this moment, visit A-I-H-T dot E-D-U. All my love. Over there? Over there's the water. Whoosh, whoosh. And look at all this stuff I'm standing on. It's called sand, and it's everywhere. This woman may sound silly to you and me. It's made up of little tiny pieces of rocks. Teeny little pieces of rocks. But to her two-year-old son exploring the world around him, (laughs) she makes perfect sense. How does it feel when you touch the sand? Is it warm? Uh Uh-huh. It's hard to hold in your hand, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Learning starts long before school does, and children are naturally curious. They want to learn, so follow their lead. Take simple, everyday moments, like sorting laundry or playing on the beach, and turn them into learning moments. Is this water? No. Very good. This is sand. Oh, (laughs) no, no, it's not food. It's sand. We don't eat sand. Turn everyday moments into learning moments. Find out how at bornlearning.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. America is facing a skilled workforce shortage. SkillsUSA can help. What is SkillsUSA? SkillsUSA is life-changing. SkillsUSA is awesome. SkillsUSA is one of the biggest opportunities life can give you. SkillsUSA is amazing. SkillsUSA is motivating. SkillsUSA specifically prepares you for the workforce. SkillsUSA empowers students to connect with a network of people, starting with their classmates, to their advisors, to other people in their states. SkillsUSA allows students to connect with business and industry, to manage their education, and to really get a feel of the real world. I'm doing something now that's going to be applicable in the real world, and those skills are going to be useful today in school and in five years when I'm working and for the rest of my life. On the web at skillsusa.org. Taking you to the threshold of a dream and beyond. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. This is our last segment, talking today about crisis as the mother of authenticity. 
You know, one of the most amazing things that I see in human relationships and as a therapist and in just human relationships is that we don't tend to believe ourselves. We don't tend to really believe that we're having a real pain until the doctor says, yep, I'm betting that hurts. Uh, we don't tend to believe that we really are um, in a certain crisis until maybe a therapist says, yeah, this is really hard, isn't it? So, you, you see, we don't really believe ourselves. And so one of the skills that we can develop in through a crisis is to begin to believe ourselves, to begin to be able to say, yeah, I really am feeling that. It's real. And, and honor it at, with your actions. Honor it with actions that say, I'm important. I'm going to take care of this part of me. I'm going to treasure this part of me. I'm going to really honor this part of me. And so believing yourself is one of the keys to developing resilience through crises. Because you see, a crisis has the value that once you've been through it and gotten to the other side, you know from then on that you can go through the next one too. Because we're all going to have crises in our lives. We go through periods of time where there's not a crisis, and then we go through other periods of time where we're in a crisis. So it's important for us to develop the resilience necessary to being able to say, I know that if the next crisis comes along, I'll handle it. I won't like it. It won't be fun for a while, but I'll handle it. And I, I can figure it out. I know how to figure it out because I did it last time. So that's a real important part. And in order to do that, we've got to begin to believe ourselves one of the ways that we can, one of the tools that we can use to help us begin to believe ourselves is a journal. Sometimes just putting something down on paper makes us go, yeah, that's really real. I put that down on paper. It must be real. And so that's one of the ways. Go to a therapist. Seek out a guru. Seek someone you can talk to who's, real, who's wise, wiser than you. And, and, and let them mirror you. Don't just listen to their advice. They, they don't know you. you don't, they're not ever going to know you as good as you know you. No therapist, no guru, no nobody can know you as good as you can know you. So they can't advise you, but what they can do is say, I want you to look in the mirror. Do you see yourself? Do you hear yourself? That's a real important uh, friend or relationship to have. The other thing is to begin to believe in yourself, and that's what we're talking about through the beginning to develop resilience. Every time we face and overcome a challenge, we get stronger. That's part of Eric's, Eric Erickson's uh, developmental stages of development. Each developmental stage comes with a challenge. And every time we overcome that challenge successfully, we grow. So we need to think of our crises as challenges through which we can self-actualize, begin to be become more true to who we actually are. And as we do that, we begin to believe in ourselves. We develop confidence in ourselves. We believe that we can handle it. Then the, the next crisis that comes along, and there will be another one, We'll know what to do. The other thing is that we can learn to lean into uncertainty. Life has a lot of mystery to it. There's a lot of things we're not going to know the answers to, and there's a lot of things we don't have to know the answers to in order to, to move on. One of the things that we tend to do when a crisis erupts is say, why, why, why? I just don't understand why he did that. I don't understand how people can do that. I don't understand. I don't understand. What we're really saying is, I don't accept this. I do not accept this. This is unacceptable. And we're right. There's a lot of things that happen to us that are un unacceptable, but guess what? They happen anyway. So we can say, well, there's a mystery to that, and I'm going to lean into that mystery, and I'm just going to say, okay, I don't have to know the answers. All I have to do is to develop some skills that help me find me in this crisis and use this crisis as a tool 
to to move into more meaning in my life, to find myself in a, at a greater depth. And so that ability to lean into uncertainty is crucial to developing resilience. When we think we have to know the answers to everything, we just stay stuck in the problem because we're never going to know the answers to everything. So we can say, I'm going to sit here until I know, till God drops the answer in my lap, or we can say, okay, I don't know and I'm not going to know, but I'm going to grow anyway. And that's what we do when we accept life on life's terms, that life is filled with mystery that we can't always understand. The other thing is to embrace our uniqueness, to be able to say, I'm a unique individual, I don't experience my crises the way anybody else does, and I'm, I know what's inside me. Have you ever been to a doctor who didn't believe you? Several years ago, I went to a doctor uh, that I had a specific problem, and I told him about the problem. He said, oh, you're too young to have that problem. And, and then when I told him that I could feel the particular thing that was about the problem, he said, oh, you can't feel that. That's not possible. He didn't believe me. The next day, he, he gave me an instrument to test it out. The next day, I went back with the instrument and gave it to him, and he, and he said, oh, my gosh, you really do have this problem. He didn't believe me. He believed his instrument. Well, you know, I'm glad he had the instrument. I'm glad he tested it out. But the deal is that we, we have a unique way of doing things. We have a unique pattern that is specific only to us. In fact, there's only one person like you on the sphere of planet Earth. One person. Nobody else can be like you. Nobody else can be you. Nobody else can take your place. When you're gone, that's it. It's over. Okay? So when, when we say to ourselves, well, no, I've got to be just like everybody else. I've got to experience this like everybody else experiences it. I've, uh, you know, if, if Joe says I ought to be over it, well, maybe I should just get over it. What we're doing is robbing ourselves of awareness of our own uniqueness. But if we embrace our uniqueness, if we say I love the fact that I'm different from other people, we won't be different in every area, but we will be different. And so we will be able to say, I like my uniqueness, and it is going to carry me to the next place in my life. My uniqueness will carry me there. Why? Because it's me. It's my authentic self, and my authentic self has a very active energy. We may be able to lock it up in the closet for a while, but it's coming out some kind of way. It will come out, and it only stays locked up in the closet as long as it thinks that being in that closet is helpful to us. When it stops being helpful to us, the authentic self is coming out. So it may come out through a crisis. It may use a crisis as a way of saying, hello, I'm in here, are you listening to me? That may be the way that our authentic self gets our attention. It may be the only way that we will allow it to get our attention. And so we need to be taking a crisis as an opportunity to expand awareness, to resolve issues that have been hanging around unresolved for a while, to come to know and accept our authenticity on a whole new level. So those four things, learning to lean into uncertainty, believing in yourself, believing yourself when you, when you have a feeling or a thought or an, or an opinion or a notion about your own life, believe that and, and embracing your uniqueness. Those are some skills you can develop that will build resilience into your life and will help you get to know yourself better so that when the next crisis comes, you're ready for it. Okay, that's all we got for today. Next week, we're going to be talking about the mandate to fear. Tune in next week. If you're afraid, tune in. We, you may be surprised at what you learn. And don't forget, your job, should you choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself.
Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time here on the 7th Wave Network. We'll talk again next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.